So if you'll look in your bulletins, we're continuing our study in the book of Ephesians during this ordinary time. And up to now, Paul has been wowing us, telling us that our Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing that there is in Christ, that he chose us to be his sons and daughters, and that deserving wrath we were made alive in Jesus, that the love and power of God is at work in our lives, and that we were saved by grace through faith. But now if you look at your text, there's this major buzzkill. <laughs> These terrible words, live in a manner worthy. Well, why is that such a buzzkill? And I was, I've been thinking about it this week, and I, I've got some more important things to say, but I thought of it this way at first. Um, have you ever known like a really strict English grandmother? who just knows everything there is to know about life, beginning with manners and just anything you can think of, just a really strict English grandmother. Well, how would you like to be a royal in England with that really strict grandmother sitting in her castle somewhere and to be hairy? Because occasion, uh, evidently what happens in Vegas gets tweeted in Instagram to the whole world. It's a, it's a rumor that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, evidently. Now can't you just see him driving up to Buckingham Palace about to be told, you need to live in a manner worthy of your family, you little whatever an English grandmother says when she's really mad, right? And I've just, you know, been around long enough, several decades now, I'm, I'm ashamed to say in public, uh, as a minister, and I just know how we read these texts. I just know for me as a trying somebody to follow Jesus, I know how we read these texts and that we so often read them through a distorted image of our Father. So I'm going to ask you to pay careful attention for the next couple of moments, not so much with your mind, um, but with the most real you with your most real heart to just, let's think about this for a moment together. This business of a distorted image of our Father. And let's start here. If you think of these famous words we call the Lord's Prayer, our Father, thy will be done. We probably can't do it right here, but it's worth you taking t some time sometime to think through what really happens in your heart when you think, our Father, thy will be done. And I just know for many, many people it's unpleasant, it's painful, we just think of it as a test, a requirement, that we're going to have to, you know, go through these big renunciations of things, sacrifices, and that if we really meant, our Father, thy will be done, that it would mutilate our freedom and that it would somehow stifle our individual development. And when one's mind starts working that way, then God then becomes the enemy of every celebration, of every joy, of every pleasure. It what, it's what gives rise to, I, I don't think it was last summer, I think it was the summer before last, there was a big bus campaign in England. And I think all over, not only bus stops, but on the buses, 
It said this, it was from an atheistic group that said, God probably doesn't exist. So stop worrying and enjoy life. So see, what happens to so many of us is the thought of God's will really being done in my life isn't something that we would think is at all pleasurable. And Jesus said, the world does not know God. And he said, no one knows the Father except the Son. You can think of these things that Jesus said in the New Testament. So who is this Father who when we hear words like live a life worthy of, it makes us panic a bit. Who is this father? And of course, the answer of the New Testament is see Jesus. If you want to know what the father's actually like, you just look at the life attitudes and practices of Jesus. Look at the manner in which he walked. Look at the manner in which he dealt with people and dealt with his own father. Think of things like the prodigal son. And the heart that Jesus meant to show that he and the Father have for those who are outside of him. So why these distortions about God the Father? Well, on a very surfacey level, lots of you sitting in this room have had bad experiences with your own father. Some of you had a father who died young. For some people, they have bad mental views of the Father because he's the giver of the law. And if you're determined to live according to your desires... If you're, can, if you're uh, determined to live according to your flesh or, or what the New Testament calls lust, lust in the New Testament is epithumia. Thumia is the basic word for heat or passion and epi meaning with. And so if somebody's determined to live through and with their passions, their desires, their flesh, well, then God does become an obstacle or an enemy. And his laws, his ideas about how human sexuality works or how human economics should best work or human relationships and community, those things then become a bother to us. Or perhaps the main reason these days, and maybe for all days, that people have had distortions about God the Father is because of the suffering of the innocent. And it asks all of us to say why. You know, we've got at least a couple of you know, natural disasters happening in the next day or two, and people will be killed and injured, and tons of private property will be lost. And of course, everybody asks why. And this makes us afraid of a father who would say, walk worthy of the calling you've received. Because somewhere deep down inside of us, we're often not sure we can trust him. You know, what will happen if I actually do that? And if I do do it, will I really have the resources to do it? Because I know when I look in me, I mostly see bankruptcy. I'm not sure I could really pull this off. And of course, the, the, the sort of basic answer of Christianity to the problem of suffering is that Jesus himself, who was the image of God, felt pain. He cried. He himself said that there was a deep mystery in suffering. But we ask, understandably, why doesn't God intervene? And of course, you know how this goes. Either he doesn't care or he doesn't have power. But again, the picture of the Bible is that God the Father freely suffers too. Now, you really need to get this bit. He suffers because he is supreme love. He's not supreme lawgiver. He's not supreme powerful one. He is the supreme lover, and love makes us vulnerable. Love makes one exposed to rejection. And so God's love, his free love, 
allows these kinds of things to happen. God's not like some powerful king who's dispatching enemies from his kingdom. Rather, through love, he takes this evil upon himself, transforming evil so that the final victory of God is love. Look, this is, this is theologically like way too much for a Sunday sermon, but in just sort of an imaginative pictorial way, this is easy. Just picture yourself in heaven. Do you want to be in heaven with a little Napoleon Bonaparte who just kicked everybody's, I can't say that in public, who just kicked everybody's butt? Do you want to be in heaven with that kind of person? Or would you rather be in heaven with somebody who it becomes then just plain to everybody that he is, he is supreme love, that he's not strong-armed power? And so this final victory that everyone will see and go, oh, I get it now, it requires a view of eternity. It requires a trust in what the book of Revelation says that one day he'll wipe away all of our tears as he transforms and makes sense of all this suffering. I don't get why God in his love and wisdom allows rival kingdoms right now. I don't know why he just doesn't banish them all from his kingdom. I don't get it. But someday we will, and all the pain will be made sense of. Now, a true image of the Father, though, changes everything. And this is what we see as we look at verse 1 here in Ephesians 4. That God's word to us is a personal call. It's an invitation. It's a welcome. So this notion of live a life worthy of your calling, the accent here isn't you be worthy. The accent here is on this personal call, this welcome. And then when we respond to it, we can then say of ourselves, I have a calling and I live a calling. And this calling then gives shape to our lives. It gives content to them and characterizes them. Now, again, don't make this harder than it is. I'm sure you've all got a neighbor on your street or something who has a ski boat. And you just know, oh yeah, that's that family that's into skiing. Everybody knows. It's not hard to know. Like, what are they into? They're skiers. Or you've probably got a neighbor, somebody at work whose whole life is, you know, sort of dominated by golfing. You just know, oh yeah, Joe, he's a golfer. Or so-and-so's an artist. Or so-and-so is a movie buff, movie buff. This is all that's in play here. Is that people would just know, oh yeah, yeah, that, that guy's a follower of Jesus. Very clear. In the same way you know somebody's a skier or a golfer, or into poetry. It's just obvious. That's all that's at play here. When it says, walk worthy of your calling, when Paul urges us to do this, when he exhorts us to do this, he's just simply saying, Jesus has called you into his kingdom and said, repent, rethink your life and believe, place your confidence in me, and then come follow me. And then this just requires the kind of complete and undivided allegiance that people give to water skiing. Or the sort of complete and undivided allegiance that people give to golf. That's all this means. But this, of course, then brings all of our life into allegiance around this, giving us some sort of step-by-step -step practices and a life that matches God's purpose and calling. And this is for our lives, excuse me, God's purposes and calling for our lives. And this is why you hear me sort of kind of banging on so much about spiritual formation. Because I've had friends who are skiers. And it takes tremendous upper body strength 
And then, you know, and these days, in the last 15 or 20 years, they've discovered the amazing core strength that it takes. So I know my friends who are uh, skiers, big biceps, making sure they had adequate shoulder strength, doing Pilates to make sure that their core was what it needed to be to do the kind of things they do skiing. That's all the disciplines are. I'm a Jesus follower. And I've got, I, I need to do these things that strengthen me so that I can actually follow him for the sake of others. That's all the disciplines are. They're just the kind of things that we engage with. They make space for the Spirit of God, the power of God, the love of God to work in our lives, to transform us so that we then just sort of naturally and easily become worthy of this calling that we've received. Now, it's important to note that this is not first an ethical demand, somehow based on our capacity apart from the presence of God. And that's what the reformers are rightly getting at. And especially those who comment on Paul from a reformed perspective, that's obviously what they're getting at. That this isn't a list of rules, it's a life, it's a lifestyle. And the Spirit of God helps us discern this call in us. And it, the Spirit of God gives us the fruit of the Spirit. So that what's really in play here when Paul says, live a life worthy of your calling is simply this that the nature of our life is based on our calling. So what have you heard? What has the Spirit helped you to discern? It goes just something like this. We're here in Orange County. Jesus said, come follow me to San Francisco. North. And some of us say, nope. I'm heading west, west to South Bay, and I'm going to serve. And others say, nope, I sort of dig La Jolla, and I'm heading south. And others with Harry say, nope, I like Vegas, and I'm going to Vegas. Or I'm kind of really into Scottsdale and the arts community, so I'm heading to Scottsdale. That's all that's in play here. If he calls you north, live a life worthy of that calling. Repent. If you've been heading south, rethink your life and turn around. Place your confidence in him. That this calling that he's giving you is good for you. It's not an enemy of your soul. It's not an enemy of the things that right now feel most real to you. We have made, I guess, I don't know when this started. I, I just know in my own life from the 60s. But we have made such a deal out of keeping it real that now, that now, along with tolerance maybe, has become the highest moral virtue. And I suppose I get it. I mean, you know, nobody likes hypocrites, but come on, just think with me. What if right now in this moment, what's most fundamentally real about you or anybody else on this earth is broken? What if heading to La Jolla isn't good for you? Where's the virtue then in keeping it real? This is why Jesus said, repent. Think about your thinking, is what that Greek term means. Or review your plans for living based on this calling that you've been given and head north. Well, then Paul just simply, if you look at the rest of the verses there, Paul just simply gives us these four signs that, are, that kind of show that we're on the right path. The first, be humble and gentle. It was fascinating that humility was invented by Christians. It's actually true. Humility was not known as a virtue in first century Palestine or any time before that. Humility was seen as 
um, ignoble, cringing, cowering slavishness. And what was valued were these great, mega, completely self-sufficient men. That, that was sort of the icon of what it meant to be human. And when Jesus comes along and says things like, unless you are converted and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And unless you humble yourself like this child, or if you humble yourself like this child, excuse me, you'll be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so Christian virtue, humility is a Christian virtue, became so because of Christ and his model. And so then recognizing its worth and its value, we then just follow him. Another mark of our calling is gentleness. Strength under control. Strength that knows who it is. Again, Jesus said of himself that he was gentle and lowly of heart. And we see this as he picks up a towel and washes his disciples' feet, dies on a cross. He never retaliated. But Jesus used the power he had in fierce defense of outsiders, that's for sure. Women, children, Samaritans, Gentiles. He was fierce with his power in defense of others, but never retaliating himself. And then lastly, unity. As Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And again, I, I think I've said this before, but it's just so important to note that the coming together of Jews and Gentiles was a miracle probably second only to the resurrection. It was, we, can't, we can't even come close to understanding it. You know, we could think about Ireland and Northern Ireland. We could think about Palestine and, you know, the Jewish state and all that. But it, that just doesn't even come quite close to it. It's never touched our life like it touched theirs. And this is why Jesus prays. We heard in our gospel lesson this morning, I ask, Father, that they may all be one, that the world may believe that you've sent me. Or I love the way Eugene gets this in the message from our Corinthians reading. The old, lab the old labels we use to once identify ourselves, labels like Jew or Greek, slave or free, they're no longer useful. We need something larger and more comprehensive for this new calling we have that this new calling we have somehow brings us all together as each one of us individually hear this call and answer it, then that calling supersedes everything and brings us together in a way that these old distinctions of male and female and rich and poor and black and white and brown and red and all these skin colors and backgrounds, they don't matter anymore. We need something bigger and more comprehensive to pull us together in this thing that God's doing. So what if this is true? What if we actually live in a God-created, God-controlled, God-sustaining, God-filled world? What if that's actually true? And what if, as we said when we started, we could trust this God and trust especially that he's not finicky about the company he keeps? Like, you're okay. I mean, all you have to do is think of Jesus and his first friends. Peter had little problems. James and John had significant problems with power. Judas was going to betray him. I mean, obviously, Jesus isn't really finicky about the people he hangs out with, which makes room for me and makes room for you. What I want you to consider this morning, again, as deeply as you can, what if God likes you? Not like loves you with agape that you can look up in a theological dictionary. 
But like, what if God likes you? Well, if he does, then you can probably get an imagination for going on this journey, trusting him as your guide. Seeing that he's made himself vulnerable to you, God risked your rejection of him. Having seen that he made himself vulnerable to us, then maybe we can make ourselves vulnerable to him. And of course, we see how this works in the transformation of Peter. We see who he was in the Gospels, this sort of bumbling, powerful, you know, leader sort of guy. And then if you read Peter's letters, he sounds just like his master. You know, a few years after Jesus died, you hear Peter advocating gentleness and humility and all these things that that Jesus advocated. So here's the last thought. We think the logic goes something like this. Live a life worthy of your calling. Ah, but crud, what about God? And all this stuff happens. So here's the last thought. Where is God when you're suffering guilt? Where is he when you're suffering shame? Where is, it when you're con- where is he when your conscience is troubled and you're beating yourself up? Where is he? Where is he when you're worried about walking worthy of your calling? Where is he? He's with you. Just like he is with Peter. He's with you. You're his best guy. He calls you his friend. He is totally with you, suffering with you, never abandoning. And his presence assuring us that grace and power is just around the corner. Even if it's only just around the corner in the sense that this life is but a breath, and one day he will wipe away every tear from our eye. Where is he? He's with you, suffering with you, never abandoning, assuring that grace and power is just around the corner. Amen.